Good afternoon. It's good to be here today. Uh, encouraged by everyone here, by the time that we've been able to spend together thus far, and praise to our Lord. Now to open up His Word together and to study from it. Today, I want us to consider the topic of local church membership. It's a very applicable topic for us. We, right now, as we've already said, uh, Judy has expressed a desire to, to place membership with the group here. Not too long ago, John and Tanya moved here and, and placed membership. And it, it's certainly a topic that, that we should uh, consider. Is this concept of local church membership a biblical concept to begin with? What does the Bible say about it? Uh, and so that's what I want us to consider today, uh, as well as two weeks from now. We're, we're going to kind of do a uh, church membership 101 and church membership 102. So today I want us to talk about the basics of what the Bible says about local church membership. It doesn't exactly use that phrase, uh, and so the, that's terminology that maybe we, we use to describe what we see in the Bible as it describes the relationship that a local church has to one another. But today we're going to talk about the definition of church membership, the demand of church membership, and the determination of church membership. So there you got a nice little alliteration to remember what we're talking about. Or maybe more simply, we can say, what is church membership? Why and how? What does it mean to be a member of a local church? Why is it important? Is it important? And how do we determine who is and who is not a member of the local flock? Or do we even need to make a clear identification? Let's start with the what. What is this idea of church membership as we see it within the scriptures? What is the definition of church membership? We see first and foremost, we are added to the Lord's church upon salvation. Uh, in a use, universal sense, and being a member of the flock of God, we uh, enter into that church upon our salvation itself. This idea of church, maybe more literally translated assembly, is just the idea of a group of people. It's not a, not a building, it's the souls, the, the, the members that make up a uh, assembly, a group. And when we talk about the Lord's church, what we're talking about is the group of people that belongs to him. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, if you want to look there with me. Acts 20 and verse 28, as Paul here talks with the elders in Ephesus, he tells them in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now, in the initial context here, he's talking about the, the flock among them. But I think more generally, as he gets into the second half of this verse, uh, the church of God are all those who are purchased with the blood of Jesus. Well, how do we become a member of the church of God? Uh, we are redeemed. And upon our redemption, upon being purchased by Jesus, we now belong to him. We are part of his group of people, his flock. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and 23 also gives us this picture of, of a universal church, of the group of all the saved. And Hebrews chapter 12, a contrast is being made between Mount Sinai under the Old Covenant and then Mount Zion, or Jerusalem. And we have this imagery used for us here in verse 22. It says, you have come to Mount Zion the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, of myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. 
We're not talking about physical Mount Zion. We're not talking about physical Jerusalem. We're talking about heavenly Jerusalem. And in the same way, we're, we're not talking about a local uh, or, or earthly roster. We are enrolled in heaven. And so if we want to be a member of the Lord's church, he adds us to that group of all the saved uh, where we are recorded in the, the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 also says, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, Paul writes, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. There's a sense in which universally we, we are all part of one body. Uh, there, there's one body that serves one head. Well, how do we get into that one body? Here he says, um, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Being born again of water in the spirit, the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When we buried the old man of sin and were raised to walk in newness of life, we became part of Christ's body. And so in a general sense, I think we first need to understand this concept that uh, when, when I join the church, it's not that I'm saved and then I join the church. Being saved, being redeemed, being purchased by Jesus' blood makes me part of his group of people, the Lord's church. However, what we're talking about here is not just being a member of the Lord's church. We're talking more specifically about the idea of being a member of a local church, a local flock or a local body. Remember in Acts 20 and verse 28, it talks about those elders shepherding the flock among them. And so we see also this concept of, of local churches and that God desires that members of his universal church, of his one flock, one body, would form local flocks here on earth. That's God's design. That wasn't something we came up with. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, a passage that we may be somewhat familiar with, we're commanded, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the manner of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And so there, an obligation that is given to every Christian is that we not neglect uh, the, the contrast to that would be that we give attention and give effort to assembling together with the Lord's church. Now, you can't do that with the universal church, can you? That includes people that are dead and gone. That includes, uh, you know, people on the other side of the world. We, we can't assemble that group together one day. To God, God be the glory, we, we will be able to assemble together with that church. And we look forward to that. But in the here and now, we, we can only fulfill that obligation of assembling together in a local sense. And yet we do have that obligation to form local flocks that meet together regularly, that give attention to assembling together, supporting and encouraging each other in that way. And we see many of the Christian duties that we are commanded within the scriptures require this context of a local flock. For instance, we see in uh, 1 Corinthians 16 a command to give on the first day of the week. A pattern there, Paul says that just as he told the churches of Galatia, he's also telling those in Corinth that on the first day of every week, each of them was to put aside and save as he may prosper. As there were needs within the work of the Lord, in this case a benevolent need, but we also see uh, needs in regard to evangelism and other ways that the church used its collective resources. 
they were commanded that they might, as they assembled on the first day of the week, we see that being a pattern in Acts 20 verse 7 uh, and, and elsewhere, that they might form a common treasury. Uh, that it's not that they're just each setting aside something at home and then when Paul comes, that then they're all going to collect it together. Well, no, they're, they're forming a, a collection that they might not have to do that when Paul comes. And so we see this idea of a formal organization that keeps a treasury and uses it for the Lord's work in, in different ways uh, as authorized within the scriptures. We also see in 1 Corinthians 14, a lot is said about the assembly as a place of edification and encouragement. And that they were to sing in order to edify one another. They were to pray toward, for one another's edification. So a collective prayer there. Teaching as well was going on in that context of a local assembly. Now, certainly uh, those are things that I can do on my own. I can sing praises to God on my own. I can um, pray certainly to God on my own. But God designed that those might also be things that I can do collectively in order to build up and encourage others. That I am to teach and admonish others. Now, I can't just do that on my own, can I? And so God's design is that we might have a, a regular assembly that we can collectively worship God and seek to edify and encourage and build up one another. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and Acts 20 and verse 7, we see that the Lord's Supper is always something that happens in the context of an assembly. Sometimes we call the Lord's Supper a communion. What, what does that mean? Well, in, in one sense, we are communing with the Lord in that uh, covenant meal, if you will, partaking of the, the, the blood of the covenant, covenant symbolically in, in the fruit of the vine. But I think as well, we see that it's not just our fellowship with God that we're remembering there, but our fellowship with one another. It's a communion with each other. As we collectively remember what the Lord has done for us, the blood that bought us as his church. And so we see that always being something within the collective uh, assembly taking place. And so many of our duties as Christians cannot be effectively accomplished outside of the assembly. And we also see uh, the Lord giving us specific instructions about the organization of these local assemblies. Uh, certainly... Uh, there, God is, is giving us a very clear pattern for how he wants his church, or in this case, his churches, to organize themselves. In 1 Timothy, we read about elders and deacons and the qualifications for those. Uh, and Titus as well. Titus was told that uh, Paul had left him in Crete to set in order what was lacking. And then he goes on to tell him uh, the type of men that he should appoint uh, work to appoint as elders there. And so we have a pattern for a local organization. And certainly there are times where maybe we don't have qualified men. Acts 14, there was a, a time period uh, between the time that Paul and Barnabas had established the congregations there and they went back and then established elders. But brethren, when we are not fully organized the way that we see churches being organized in the New Testament, something is lacking. That's what Paul told Titus. He, he left him there to set in order the things that were lacking. That's what we want to grow towards. That's what we want 
to be. And we're actually, in our lesson today, going to talk a good bit about this concept of local shepherds. I know we don't have those here. We don't have uh, men at this time that meet those qualifications, uh, and it would be uh, certainly a, a much bigger uh, issue to, to appoint unqualified men uh, than to, in this case, not have them. Um, but we're going to talk a lot about that, and I want us to be thinking about that as we think about the context of the local church, because that is part of God's design. But as this applies to the individual Christian, each of us uh, has an obligation to join ourselves to a local flock, or, or as we might phrase it many times, place membership. If you want to turn back to Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, the, the passage that Jonathan read for us a moment ago, notice in verse 26 what is said about Saul of Tarsus. Now Saul had already been added to God's church. He had already had Ananias come to him and say, why do you wait to arise and be baptized, uh, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord? So Paul is saved. He's part of the Lord's church. But here in verse 26, it says, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. We see later on in verse 27, Barnabas clears up the issue and he does associate, join himself to the group there. What exactly was it that Paul was seeking to do here? Well, this word uh, associate, some versions say uh, seeking to join himself to them. Uh, literally, the, the word could be translated to, to glue, to cement, to fasten firmly together, Thayer says. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, in fact, uh, when we read, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, it's the same word. Paul was seeking to cling to the brethren there, just as we would seek to cling to what is good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 and 17, here Paul says, Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, The two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Joining yourself uh, in the intimate relationship that God means for marriage is the same word there as what Paul was seeking to do with the brethren. That, that type of intimate relationship that, that Paul there in 1 Corinthians 16 describes as our relationship with the Lord is what Paul was seeking to do to those brethren. He was seeking to have an intimate relationship uh, to join himself closely to them, to become part of one body with them, to become one flesh with them in that sense. And so we do see here this concept of, of Paul seeking to, as we might phrase it, place membership, join himself to that local body, become an active mem working member in that flock. And so as we think about this concept of church membership, I want to make it very clear, first of all, that this is not just a lesson for people who may be placed in the process of placing membership or consider placing membership at some time. I think this is going to be extremely helpful for us as we consider, if I'm a member here, what does that mean? What is it that I have done in becoming a member here? What are my obligations? We're going to talk a little bit more about the responsibilities and blessings of church membership in our 102 lesson. Um, but I think we need to ask ourselves a question, is that what I've done here? 
have I joined myself, have I clung, have I knit myself together as one flesh with this group of God's people? That's what we see Paul seeking to do, and I think that's what we see each and every one of us should strive to do as we seek to be an active working member of a, a local body. We talked about this definition. What about the demand of church membership? The, the why? And I, I want to make it very clear uh, as, as we talk about the, the necessity of church membership that I recognize there are times and maybe very long periods of time where we need to, to exercise wisdom and, and take time to come to that decision. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that there, there's never a time where we're not a, a member of a local flock. Uh, I, I don't want that to, to be confusing. Certainly Paul, as he was traveling about from place to place, uh, you know, there, there were times where he was in, in between congregations. But what, what I do want us to see is that God's ultimate design for me is to be an active working member of a local flock, wherever that may be. And so I think we'll see that this is not just an optional thing, but ultimately this is a necessary thing, that we be an active working member of a local flock. Some, you know, we, we might think, well, I can fulfill all those obligations that we just talked about without formally joining myself to a group. I, I, I can partake of the Lord's Supper in a congregational setting. I, I can contribute. I, I can worship. I can encourage and I can edify. But why is it that I would need to identify as a member of a flock? Well, as God designed it, uh, on a basic level, shepherds must know their sheep and sheep must know their shepherds. And we'll talk about how that applies to us, even in the absence of shepherds. But as God designed it, um, we, if we're going to look out for the flock as he wants us to look out for them, we need to know who the flock is. 1 Corinthians 20 and verse 28. Remember we read earlier, Paul told those elders, those pastors, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Also in 1 Peter chapter 5, if you want to turn there, we've studied this recently uh, in our Sunday class. 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 1 through 3, Peter writes, uh, starting verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as or lording it over those allotted to your charge, but, providing, uh, but proving to be examples to the flock. You notice, in most of these cases, they had, as shepherds, had an obligation to look after, to oversee, to shepherd the flock among them. And here specifically in verse 3, it describes these souls as those allotted to their charge. Here as shepherds, they, they were entrusted with a certain group of people to look out for their souls. And they would give an account for that, as we'll see later on in Hebrews 13, verse 17. You know, if, if you've ever been uh, a chaperone, for a field trip, 
You, you might understand this concept. As a chaperone, you have certain people that you're supposed to look over, right? You're supposed to oversee them, make sure they're okay, make sure they're accounted for. Well, what if you don't know who those people are? Are you going to be able to do that effectively? Well, no, as, as a chaperone, every once in a while, you're going to call them all together. You're going to have your list. You're going to make sure you know everybody is here and accounted for. But if you don't know who those people are, you can't do that. And so if we're going to fulfill this obligation that, that in this case is certainly, as God designed it, given to local shepherds, they're going to have to know who those sheep are. It's going to have to be clear who is part of the local flock and who is not. And sheep as well must know their shepherds. Later on in this passage, we see uh, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. I think in the context here, he probably is talking about this idea of their shepherds, their elders. But also in Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13 and verse 17, we read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Here, those who are entrusted with watching over our souls, we're told to obey them, to submit to them. You know, that means, and I know we're getting into a lot of things that don't apply to our situation specifically, but I, I think this is important as we consider this looking forward. To obey and to submit to an eldership means that I'm not always going to agree with them. To obey and submit doesn't mean that, well, I, I agree with that decision, so I'll submit, and I agree with that decision, so I'll submit. That means individuals who have been appointed to that office because of their spiritual wisdom and maturity um, I submit when they may think that something is best that, that I don't agree with. Now certainly, first and foremost, we submit to the chief shepherd, to his will. But there are going to be areas of judgment where to obey and to submit means that I am going to agree, uh, submit to things that may not be how I would have done it. Okay? So I, I think that uh, is a helpful point to make here as we look at this Hebrews 13 passage. But having stated all that, how does this apply to us? We don't have qualified. We're in the situation of those churches uh, prior to Paul and Barnabas coming back through and appointing elders among them. Well, we see these obligations given to elders are, are not all of a sudden just uh, not going to be done because there's no elders. We see ultimately there are responsibility that's given to each and every one of us. Even in the absence of qualified elders, we still have a responsibility to look out for the flock and to look out for one another. And, and let me say, even when there are qualified elders, that doesn't mean that I am now released from all obligation to look out for the well-being of the souls around me. No, this is an obligation given to each and every one of us. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Hebrews 3, starting verse 12, we read, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What am I commanded to do there? Well, I'm commanded to encourage from day to day, but I, even more than that, he says, 
take care, take heed that there is not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. We need to beware that, that none of the souls among us become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that isn't just make sure that, that you don't, that's where it starts, but also here that is make sure that others don't. Make sure that others aren't hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look out for one another. We have an obligation to take heed for the well-being of the souls around us. Even where there aren't those who are, are given a position of authority in doing that work, we each have a responsibility to keep each other accountable, to look out for the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters. Galatians 6, verse 1 and 2 takes it a step further. Not only are we have an obligation to prevent these things from happening, but if they do happen, if somebody is in sin, we have an obligation to reach out to them uh, and to lift them up, to restore them. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, we read, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. If somebody is caught in a trespass, whose responsibility is it to reach out and seek to restore them? Is it just the elder's responsibility? It says, you who are spiritual, restore them. Who, who does that mean? Well, I certainly hope it applies to you. Uh, that, that means it, it is your responsibility and your responsibility and your responsibility and my responsibility to look out for the spiritual well-being of the souls around me. And if I'm aware that somebody has fallen, if I'm aware that somebody is practicing sin, as a, a member of this local flock, I, I need to be close enough to them that I can reach out and seek to lift them up and restore them. We, we can't, you know, when the wolf comes in, because we don't have local shepherds, we can't just all scatter and say, well, it wasn't my responsibility. That's not how it works. No, we each have a responsibility. In 1 Corinthians 5, and we're going to come back to this passage later, but if you want to turn over there for a moment now, 1 Corinthians 5 talks about the concept of church discipline. We said we have an obligation to prevent this from happening, to, to look out for the well-being of the souls around us. If somebody does fall this in, we have a responsibility to go to them and seek to restore them. 1 Corinthians 5 takes it even a step further. If they continue in sin, we have an obligation to exercise judgment, to exercise what we might call church discipline. Here, notice at the end of this passage, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, as, as Paul here is talking about a situation where a man had his father's wife and persisted in this sexual immorality. Down in verse 11, Paul had told them that they should not associate with the immoral, but he specifies in verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. What, ob what obligation do we have as God's people to exercise judgment? It's not that we're to be going around to every person in the world and you know, judging them. It says God judges those who are outside. 
our, our role primarily in reaching out to the world is to shine the light of the gospel. Uh, certainly that's going to involve preaching repentance as well. But when it comes to actually exercising judgment, notice that phrase at the end of verse 12. Do you not judge those who are within the church? I'm afraid sometimes the answer would be no. No, we don't. But what God is telling us here is that we do have an obligation to. That we, as brethren, have an obligation to look out for the spiritual well-being of the souls around us. And that involves passing some judgment. And God here is giving us the authority to do that. If there is somebody who is unrepentant, who is persisting in sin, the pattern of 1 Corinthians 5 uh, and other passages elsewhere is that we cannot continue to consider them an, uh, a working member of the Lord's church when they are rebelling against the Lord. If they're not in fellowship with God, they cannot be in fellowship with us. And so we have an obligation here. Uh, and yet, how are we going to fulfill that obligation if there's no distinction between who is a member of the local flock and who's not? The only way we can know who we have an obligation to judge, as this passage describes it, is if we know those who are inside, if we know those who are members of the flock. And more than that, we are much more spiritually vulnerable when we are outside of God's design for the local flock. If you want to turn back to 1 Peter 5 for a moment. 1 Peter 5 uses this illustration of, of the shepherd and the flock at the beginning of this passage. And then we get down to verse 8, and Peter writes, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I don't think it's a coincidence that he uses this illustration of the flock, and then just a few verses later he talks about the devil as a prowling lion seeking to devour us. Clearly, part of God's design for his flock being packed together, having uh, others who will look out for their well-being spiritually, is to help protect us from our adversary. And, and what animal is it that that prowling lion is, is going to devour? Is it the one in the center of the flock next to all the others, next to the shepherd, well, no, it's, it's the one on the outskirts who is separated from the flock that he's able to, to drive away from the others uh, and chase down. And so God's design for his people is that we have the type of relationship with one another, this, this joining together, this knitting together that helps strengthen us in this spiritual battle that we face. The elders in uh, an established congregation would certainly lead in this, as we see in Acts 20. Um, as the elders there are told to be on guard, uh, Paul goes on to say, because I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also in Hebrews 13, verse 17, we're told that elders are to keep watch over our souls uh, as those who will give an account. And so elders are not just those who look over the church treasury or the church building. Uh, in fact, that is um, really not even part of their work to begin with. Maybe that would fall more under the, the work of deacons. The elders are those who look over the souls 
of a flock. And I'm afraid sometimes when we start talking about accountability, about having others who are looking out for our souls, and especially in a case where you have elders who have authority to look over our souls, we, we start thinking, well, I don't really need that. You know, I, I, I don't want someone getting into my business like that. I, I don't need some elder or some church member looking over my shoulder. I, I just want to come to church on Sunday to pay my dues and then to go back home and live my life by myself without people, you know, probing into what's going on in my life. That's not God's design. And when I say that I, I can be spiritually what God wants me to be apart from his design, I'm saying that I have a better idea than God does. Now, God's design is that I have people keeping me accountable, people who are part of my life, that I need to have a certain transparency and that we need to be part of one another's lives so that we can look out for one another's spiritual well-being. That may be uncomfortable sometimes. But we're, we need to have the type of relationships, to work on the type of relationships, that we can be part of one another's lives, that we can be looking out for one another's spiritual well-being. So thirdly, how do we determine church membership? If it is something that, that is part of God's design and that we should be working towards, uh, then how do we come to that decision? Well, the pattern that we see of Paul in Acts 9 um, is that he initiated that association, that he sought to join himself to the church there. Um, Saul didn't wait for some shepherds to find him wandering out in the open field and, and coax him into the flock. No, Paul took initiative to seek to fulfill his role as an active member of a flock uh, by joining himself to the brethren there. But as we think about that, certainly Christians must be selective in the flock to which they join themselves to. That's going to be a decision that we're going to have to pray about, that we're going to have to think about long and hard, because it's going to have a, a major impact on our work for the Lord and on our spiritual well-being. Consider Numbers 16, where you have Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who rebel against Moses, who they want to, to be leaders. They're, they're tired of, of taking orders from somebody else. What does God say to the children of Israel about them? In verse 26 of number 16, God says, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them, or you will be swept away in all their sin. We need to be very careful that we are not clinging to, joining ourselves to, developing an intimate relationship with a group of people and specifically spiritual leaders who are not serving the Lord, who are in error, who are teaching things that are contrary to God's word. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 9, we're told a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. It will influence us for evil. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, I don't know about you, but most times when I think of that verse, bad company corrupts good morals, I, I think about worldly things. I think about people who are involved in the, the lusts of this world. In 1 Corinthians 15, that's really not what he's talking about. In 1 Corinthians 15, 
when he says bad company corrupts good morals, he's talking about false teachers. About false teachers who are teaching that the resurrection has already come. And so I need to be very careful that I, I don't treat false doctrine lightly. Because bad company corrupts good morals. And so God would have me be very careful about what kind of people I join myself to and the influence that will have on me, on my family. God will judge if we have supported and associated ourselves with men that are in error, that are leading us astray. In Revelation, we see God warning certain churches that, that he, if they don't repent, would remove their lampstand. I don't want to be a part of a group that has its lampstand removed. <laughs> and so many times we see that it comes to a point where God would have his people come out from among them. And so we need to be very careful about who it is that we choose to associate ourselves with in that way, develop that type of relationship with. But conversely, a local flock must decide whether or not to accept an individual into their fellowship. You see there in Acts chapter 9 when Paul, or Saul at that time, seeks to join himself to cling to the church there. Initially, they reject him. They don't allow him to join uh, their midst. It's only when Barnabas comes along uh, and explains that yes, Paul was genuinely converted, that he is then accepted as a working member moving about freely in Jerusalem with them. And I think what we'll see is that those brethren had every right to reject Saul if, if in fact, he was still persecuting the church. Remember Acts 20, verse uh, 28 and 29, where Paul told the elders in Ephesus to look out for the flock and that savage wolves would, would come in. What, what did he expect them to do about that? He said, just so you know, this is going to happen, but if they come in, you really can't refuse them to come in. Just go ahead and welcome them in. Is that, is that what he's expecting? No, certainly. If, if there's a savage wolf coming in, the, the shepherds and the congregation in general needs to take action to prevent that influence from coming in. I think what the, the church in Jerusalem saw initially is that that was the case. That here is, is a savage wolf who is going to come in to, to persecute us and, and to uh, make, um, you know, draw people away from the Lord. Uh, and yet uh, they come to find out that is not the case. So there is a certain discretion that does need to be made there. And we see the same concept in 2 John 9 and 11. There's just one chapter there. If you want to turn over to 2 John. Verse 9 through 11. Notice what John writes. He says in verse 9, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. John's saying, make it very clear that you are not approving of this, that you are not welcoming this into your midst, somebody who is not abiding in the teaching or the doctrine of Christ. Because he says there in verse 9, it is only those who are abiding in the teaching of Christ that have fellowship with God. Brethren, if God 
does not have fellowship with somebody, should we have fellowship with them? Well, God doesn't accept you, but I'm a little bit more accepting than God. Is, it, is that my attitude? Most certainly not. No, if, if I, from what I can see from the fruits that are being born, know that somebody is not in fellowship with God, I have an obligation to not accept them into a fellowship that God would not accept them into. And so there's some judgment that needs to be made. And we can't always know. We don't see the heart as God sees the heart. But as far as we are aware, here John makes it very clear that we should not re receive in those who are not abiding in the teaching of Christ. And so there is a line that needs to be drawn. And that's why it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter where you come from, where you are. We, we have an obligation before somebody becomes a, a member of this flock to make sure that as far as we can be aware, you are, in fact, in fellowship with God. Um, and thank the Lord that's not usually uh, an issue that we, we have dealt with. Um, but it is an obligation we have and something that we do need to take seriously. Because as we said earlier, this is part of our responsibility to guard the flock. If we're going to prevent that leaven from coming in, if we're going to prevent the savage wolf from entering in, we have to use some discretion. And we have to make sure that, that we um, are seeking to soberly honor God and those that we would welcome into our fellowship. Um, again, we looked at 1 Corinthians 5 earlier. And remember at the end of that passage about church discipline, he, he told us that our, our role is not to judge those in the world around us. We're, we're not to go around making a judgment about every single person's relationship with God. That's uh, not what our job is. However, he says we do judge those among us. And if somebody is seeking to come among us, that would apply. We need to make certain judgments, and we may not be perfect in that. We, we can't see everything. We don't know everything. But as far as we are able, we need to be seeking to make sure that we're not allowing leaven to, to come in and influence the flock. So, this afternoon, we want to extend an invitation. And it may not be the, the invitation that you would think would come at the end of a lesson like this. We're going to make it very clear that our primary concern is not who fills these chairs. Our, our primary concern is not how many people we get into this building. Our primary concern is people being in fellowship with God, people being members of His church, having a hope of eternity with Him. And so while we may discuss local church membership, and I think it's an important thing to discuss, uh, let, let it be clear that, that our goal is not just growing some locality. Our, our goal is not filling chairs or pews or whatever they might be. Our goal is helping people get to heaven. However, as we as a local flock seek to do that for one another, uh, we want to make it clear as well that we would welcome uh, people who, who would seek to become active members of this flock and yet do that in a way that is consistent with what we see in Scripture. 
uh, and try to exercise discretion as God would have us exercise discretion. And so what about you today? Are you a member of Christ's body? Are you a member of his flock? That's the primary question. And if you're not, then you won't be able to be part of that eternal assembly, that Mount Zion that we read about. God wants you to be a member of his flock. If you need to turn your life over to him, if there's anything that we can do to help you in that, won't you let us know at this time as we sing?